Welcome to the Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show, where we learn how to use the resources inside the Access Pass. If you're subscribed to a resource library, you have instant access to all of our resources that we're talking about today. If you're not a member, you can get started today by heading to therapyinsights.com. If you're listening to this episode on a podcast or watching this video on YouTube and you want official CEU credit, head to therapyinsights.com and click on CEUs. Fill out the form for the PT Resource Roadmap Show episode number four to get your certificate of completion. I'm your host, Shweta. We also have our Therapy Insights writers, Ross and Troy, with us. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hey. So really quick, this show is being offered for CEUs, so we need to verbalize our disclosures. All of us here are being paid by Therapy Insights to run the show. So let's get started. We have a great lineup of resources this month from what is psoriatic arthritis, sleeping positions for people with spinal pain, carpal anatomy, and diagnostic resource for physicians, to what is Huntington's disease, and should I use hot or cold? The first resource that we're going to dive into is what is psoriatic arthritis, and Ross wrote this piece, so I'll let Ross talk about it. Yeah, uh, so this piece is designed as a handout uh, that can be given to people with psoriatic arthritis uh, if they've been diagnosed by the rheumatologist and they're in PT or OT. Uh, you can give them this to just kind of explain what it is and what to expect. Um, and it's kind of written with the uh, client in mind, but you also can get a lot of good information from it as a clinician as well. Um, so it talks about what psoriatic arthritis is and how it's a autoimmune condition characterized by a joint pain and skin and nail changes. About 80% of people have psoriasis uh, with it. And uh, this typically um, is near the joints with psoriatic arthritis. Um, and then uh, around half or a little over half have nail disease as well. Um, it can cause enthesitis or um, tendon pain where the tendon hooks in near the bone uh, and uh, um, can also um, cause axial spondyloarthritis, which is similar to um, ankylosing spondylitis. And there is a lot of overlap in some of the symptom presentation between the two disorders as well. Um, and so it can affect the sacroiliac joints as well. Um, it can cause uh, swelling of the fingers and toes as well, um, and uveitis or inflammation of the eyes or uh, inflammatory bowel problems as well. Um, and th there's a pretty big spectrum in how people present with psoriatic arthritis. And from what I read, it's uh, probably very uh, underdiagnosed. And there's some screening studies where they screen people for this disorder and about 50% of cases have not been identified. And it's probably further complicated by the fact that not everyone gets psoriasis or maybe they get some really mild psoriasis and, uh, and so it can be missed very easily. Um, and it can mimic other types of arthritis such as rheumatoid arthritis. Um, typically, psoriatic arthritis is a oligoarthritis, meaning it affects four or fewer joints, whereas rheumatoid arthritis is a polyarthritis, meaning it affects more than five joints. And uh, um, typically, rheumatoid arthritis affects some of the smaller joints in the hand, whereas uh, psoriatic arthritis, from my understanding, is more likely to affect some of the larger joints. Um, and then rheumatoid arthritis does not affect uh, 
doesn't cause that emphysitis or uh, it doesn't affect the spine as often and doesn't have the skin and nail uh, issues either. Um, so it's typically diagnosed by a rheumatologist and uh, they consider medical history, symptom presentation, um, psoriatic arthritis on imaging. They, uh, you may see new bone formation near joints, uh, which is different from rheumatoid arthritis where you're more likely to see erosion uh, around bone or around joints. Um, and then uh, laboratory tests are actually not incredibly helpful for psoriatic arthritis. Um, and some of the tests for systemic inflammation are only elevated in about half of cases. So it's a challenging diagnosis. Um, as far as treatment, uh, it's recommended to get early detection and treatment. So if it's something that you might suspect as a clinician can be good to refer that out or have a discussion with the primary care provider or the rheumatologist if there's one involved. Um, and uh, typically a multidisciplinary approach is used for treating it. Rheumatologists are kind of the head of the team for that, but physical therapists, occupational therapists, uh, podiatrists, um, dermatologists, um, ophthalmologists, if there's eye inflammation and gastroenterologists can all be involved depending on what sort of spectrum of symptoms you run into with uh, psoriatic arthritis. Um, I didn't dive into what specific drugs might be used very much, but drug, there are some drugs available and that can include anti-inflammatory drugs uh, and uh, topical treatments for the psoriasis. And then there's also disease modifying and biologic drugs as well that are available. Um, there's not a lot of evidence for the optimal way to re rehab people with uh, psoriatic arthritis. Um, and we don't really know the optimal exercise uh, guidelines, but typically strengthening range of motion and aerobic exercise is uh, recommended. Um, we know that uh, um, in general, people with inflammatory arthritis uh, tend to have uh, lower disease activity scores uh, if they're regularly exercising. And psoriatic arthritis does predispose you to some cardiorespiratory problems as well and heart disease. And so um, aerobic exercise just kind of makes sense from that standpoint. Um, and uh, um, there's strong evidence uh, that exercises benefits uh, for axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic ar arthritis is kind of in that family of disorders that can cause that axial spondyloarthritis. So, um, uh, and it's associated with other problems um, such as obesity, it increases the risk of getting psoriatic arthritis. Um, low activity levels are also associated with an increased risk of developing psoriatic arthritis, which also kind of reinforces that probably getting people exercising was a good thing uh, if you suspect they might be dealing with this. Um, and uh, as far as diet goes, there was one pretty well-designed double-blinded study that found that weight loss seemed to be helpful uh, for um, affecting uh, joint disease activity for people with psoriatic arthritis, but they tried um, antioxidants, um, omega-3 fatty acids, um, to try to get an anti-inflammatory effect. And that did not seem to work as well. But for people who have obesity along with psoriatic arthritis, weight loss can also be uh, an effective strategy. So um, that's that piece. And I think it's kind of a nice just educational overview of psoriatic arthritis. This is a, just a simple uh, resource that you can give to people with uh, spine pain, specifically low back pain is kind of what I focused in on with this. But um, it talks about some just basic recommendations uh, 
for how you can change your sleeping position if you're a back sleeper, side sleeper, stomach sleeper for different uh, types of pain. You know, if you're have pain with a lot of flexion, if you're a back sleeper, talks about how laying with your legs flat might be helpful to put you into some of that natural extension, making sure you don't use too thick of a neck pillow that's, that can put some tension on your nervous system. Um, talks about how if you're a side sleeper to try not to bring your knees up too close to the stomach and that keeping them a little straighter might be helpful. Um, and then, uh, um, talks about how stomach sleeping in general is probably one of the more comfortable positions for people who have pain with flexion, but, uh, that, uh, if there's comorbid neck pain, you have to be careful with that. Uh, cause that can sometimes be un uh, uncomfortable for people with neck pain. Um, and then it goes into pain with extension. It talks about, uh, putting your legs up on a couple pillows to flatten out the back if you're a back sleeper. Um, and then how kind of the opposite, you might pull your knees up a little bit uh, if you sleep on your side to uh, maybe flex the back a little bit more while you're sleeping. Um, and then it talks about if you're a t stomach sleeper, um, how putting some pillows under the stomach to kind of keep the back from extending might be helpful and how using a firmer bed can be helpful so that your stomach isn't sinking into the bed and putting you into extension. Um, and then it talks about pain with side bending and how uh, um, there might be some experimentation uh, if you're uh, a side sleeper to kind of see uh, what works best is there might be a little bit of side bending with um, uh, being a side sleeping. Um, and it talks about how uh, being on your back might be the preferred position because you won't be uh, side bending as much with that. And then uh, it talks about stomach sleeping, how you might need to experiment if you do keep one leg up to the side a little bit when you're on your stomach to try to find which way uh, doesn't put you into that side, that uh, provoking side bent position. Um, and then for all movement hurts, it just gives you some recommendations for just trying to kind of keep the spine in more of a neutral position uh, and give some recommendations for that. Um, and then there's a, uh, also a piece there for if there's neck pain, talking about uh, positioning with the, a pillow just to make sure that you're not side bending uh, too far, you know, towards the mattress if you have a too flat of a pillow or away from the mattress if it's too thick of a pillow. Hey, Shveta, I think your mic is off. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Sorry. I was saying that um, I think that this is a very neat little handout for patients to look at to really get a visual cue. Like if they are, you know, like in pain with whatever position, then they know exactly what to do because it's broken down very well into like sections and like based on, okay, like if you are a back sleeper with this and then, you know, what kind of category do they specifically fall into and that kind of helps them determine how they can modify their positions or go into those positions or, you know, like try different positions depending on like how their pain changes and things like that. So, yeah, it's very, very versatile. And I kind of, I like that uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of times when you look up things on the internet, it uh, doesn't really individualize very much based on uh, what, position hurts. And so that's kind of was my idea with this is trying to find some a little bit more individualized uh, recommendations for sleeping positions. Okay. Um, would you say like there is like a lot of research out there, though, like, which is very specific to something like this? 
That's a good question. Uh, for this piece, I mostly just went off of biomechanical, uh, just kind of common sense biomechanics. But uh, the only thing I've seen, and I didn't reference this with this piece, so the only thing I've seen specifically is that typically for low back pain, firmer beds are associated with less back pain. Um, and so that's something that people can consider. Um, but again, that's not something I've referenced here and I don't have the exact study off, you know, off the top of my head, but, um, but, uh, I'd say that that's maybe the one thing I have seen in research is that maybe a firmer bed is helpful, uh, if there's back pain. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Well, moving on. Our next resource is, that we have today is, uh, the carpal anatomy and diagnostic resource for clinicians. And Ross wrote this piece again, so I'll have Ross talk about it. Yeah, uh, so this one is uh, very, there's a lot of information with this one, so I'll try to move through it as efficiently as I can. So um, the idea with this is it's it's designed for clinicians, and it kind of goes through um, all the different carpal bones and, uh, you know, how they're diagnosed and, uh, uh, you know, it, it goes into clinical exam a little bit. And then I did talk about imaging. I know that that's not something that we're typically doing frequently as PTs, but it can be good to have that knowledge or at least have something to reference to if you have a direct access patient and um, you want to call up their primary care provider and ask them if they can be evaluated. Just having that knowledge in your in the back of your mind maybe would be good. But typically these are managed um, by orthopedic physicians. And so this isn't so designed to be something where you're going to take over for them. It's more of just some things to keep you aware, um, both for splint times and uh, uh, kind of what to expect um, if someone has one of these carpal fractures or um, kind of what to keep in mind if you want to maybe refer out somebody who has traumatic wrist pain. So um, the first, first it talks about the scaphoid um, and the scaphoid is the most, it, it's in order by what's the most common. Um, the scaphoid makes up about two thirds of all wrist fractures and, uh, um, it's typically young males and the mechanism of, in of injury is typically a fallen and outstretched hand. Um, there are actually some, it's of all of these, it has the most clinical data, uh, for, um, uh, clinical tests to kind of rule out these fractures. Um, the... Uh, there's three main tests that have been uh, studied. One is scaphoid tenderness, so it kind of outlines where to, to push for that um, with the uh, snuff box and then the tubercle on the molar side. And then uh, talks about the thumb compression test, which is the weakest of the three tests. And uh, the text is a little small for me to read, but I, it has data there as far as sensitivity and specificity for those. In general, they're better screening tools. There's higher sensitivity than specificity for those. So you can't diagnose the scaphoid fracture, but it can um, lead you away from it a little bit if some of those are negative. It talks about imaging. So typically x-rays are the uh, first line uh, imaging modality for scaphoid fractures. And typically, um, historically, uh, the uh, standard of care is to do a follow-up x-ray. If they're negative, you do a follow-up x-ray in six weeks or so uh, and see if it's positive then because the sensitivity goes up a little bit. I think that the sensitivity at six weeks is like 70%, which is still not great. And so the authors of this, there's a, kind of an expert panel of, uh, I think they're orthopedic physicians who were discussing some of the newer research. And they were saying that really 
if radiographs are negative uh, and you suspect a scaphoid fracture, you're better off just going with the MRI because the sensitivity is like 99% something like that. It's very high. I, again, I can't really see the text very well on that. But um, And then uh, uh, CT scans can be used if you do detect a fracture on x-ray and then you want to find out more information about the fracture. So, um, and then treatment can vary a lot depending on the location of the fracture and um, uh, whether it's displaced or not. So uh, splint times can vary from four weeks onward to a very long time. So typically the distal pole of the scaphoid has better blood supply. So if you have a non-displaced distal fracture, then that might be, need to only be splinted for a month. Whereas if it's a proximal pole fracture where the blood supply is not very good, um, then that can need to be uh, splinted for much longer, especially if there's displacement. So then the triquetrum is the second most common. I think it was around 18%, something like that. Um, and uh, uh, the data is not very good for accuracy palpating the triquetrum. Uh, even ex experienced orthopedic physicians had pretty poor reliability with palpation for that one. Um, but it does talk about how you can try to palpate that and then uh, goes into imaging and uh, typically lateral view x-rays are the first line for that. And I can't remember for sure, but I believe uh, uh, MRI might have been the best confirmation test for that one. Again, I can't see it very well, but um, it goes into that a little bit. And then it discusses uh, different treatments, which can range from short-term splinting uh, to ORIF, depending on how severe the fracture is. Um, trapezium fractures is our third. Uh, there's a little bit better. Uh, you can do, I think that at this point, uh, the prevalence has really dropped. I believe it's like 4% or something. So trapezium fractures are very rare. And from here on out, they're all very rare. So, uh, but for trapezium fractures, you can see more pain uh, with movement of the thumb. And so you can provoke that a little bit more easily compared to um, some of the other ones. Uh, so from a clinical examination standpoint, that could be helpful. Um, and then it goes into your imaging and different treatments, which again, for all of these really varies. And that's kind of determined by the orthopedic doc. Lunate, uh, and for the lunate, an MRI is kind of your best, best test probably because uh, lunate injuries are commonly associated with ligamentous problems around, around the, the bone. And so uh, MRI will show those the best. Um, and uh, um, clinical tests, there are some clinical tests. There's a scaphoid shift test, which I talked about a little bit in there, which is where you come into this position and you push on the scaphoid and you look for a clunk. Um, but I don't know if there's really great data for that one. Uh, but that is one that's historically used for lunate problems. Uh, capitate is uh, usually, from what I remember, I think that one was usually picked up on x-rays because uh, they're usually fairly significant injuries. There's usually significant trauma uh, associated with those. Hamate fractures can vary. You can have hook of the hamate fractures, which the clinical test for that is ulnar deviation and then resisting your uh, fourth and fifth digit and then looking for reproduction of pain at the hook of the hamate because you're wrapping the tendons around the hamate and then seeing if pulling the tendon against the hamate hurts. Um, and that's uh, kind of the clinical test you can use for that. Um, again, I don't know if there's a lot of great data for that one because it's a very rare fracture. Um, and then uh, piece of form, again, I don't know if there was much data 
for that. And very rare at this point, we're down to like 1%. And then I think for the trapezoid, it was like 0.5%. So there's very, very little evidence really on the best way to diagnose those. But um, it does outline, you know, kind of splint times and uh, mechanism of injury and what to expect with those. Sorry, Shveta, your uh, mic is off again. My apologies. That's um, good. That still looks pretty detailed. Like, even though, like, you try to be as concise as possible with that, like, just the handout is very detailed in terms of, like, each of the bones. And, like, I, I think that that's, that's very, very, very resourceful. So. Thank you. Cool. All right, moving on. Um, so since some of our resources have articles tied to them, like in research, uh, we do share that as part of our resources too. And um, Ross had one such article, which was the diagnostic accuracy of history taking, physical examination, and imaging for phalangeal, metacarpal, and carpal factors, a systematic review update in 2020. Ross, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, um, I think the bottom line from this study uh, is that um, for physical exam especially, uh, we don't have a lot of great data showing that you can diagnose definitively, that you can diagnose a fracture in the hand or wrist uh, uh, with physical exam. And so I think the takeaway for us uh, clinicians or, or um, occupational therapists or physical therapists is that uh, when in doubt, refer out. So. Uh, the imaging does improve accuracy, and uh, I think in general, they recommended at least radiographs to improve accuracy combined with your clinical test. But even then, imaging tests were also uh, only moderately accurate in that hospital settings for definitive diagnosis. And so um, something to keep in mind uh, that uh, these are very challenging and not straightforward typically, and uh, that uh, you probably should err on the side of caution with, when you're dealing with these. Ross, when we're talking about imaging here, was it specific just to like radiographs? Or that's like, a good question. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good going MRI, CT as well, because you know, like how you just talked about in your resource about MRI having a little, like obviously more uh, sensitivity and specificity compared to like an X-ray. Yeah, that's a good question. And they did dive into that a little bit uh, more individually, and it does vary a lot. So uh, yeah, MRI is much better. And I think that um, because radiographs are kind of cheaper and they're usually more readily available and faster, that's usually what's used a lot. And so those radiographs um, definitely have their limitations with picking up these fractures. And I have some personal experience with this. One time I was worried about, I was doing dips and I jumped up and I, um, pushed my hand on something really quickly and I had pain right over the hook of my hamate and I wanted to make sure I didn't have a fracture there. And so I went in for x-rays and I went into an orthopedic office and I asked for x-rays and they did a lateral view and a PA view and said they didn't see fractures and sent me home. And uh, I, I was thinking, how do you see the hook of the hamate with these? And I did some research and found that those 
the sensitivity of those two types of x-rays is only like 20% or something for a hook of the handmate fracture. And so you need like a carpal tunnel view and you need a, a, a supinated view. And even with those, the sensitivity of a radiograph is only like 80% or something. So uh, it's something that you have to kind of keep in mind that uh, um, there are limitations with radiographs with carpal fractures for sure. And I think that that uh, was something they definitely hammered on in that, in that article. Yeah, I think like, I'm glad you brought up a personal experience because um, coincidentally, like I've had a personal experience and plus I had another, like one of my patients today um, mentioned something on the similar lines where she told me that, you know, they were not able to catch a hairline fracture in her femur on a radiograph, but they were able to catch it on an MRI. Yeah. So I was like... Um, I mean, from the looks of it, it seems like it's not just restricted to like smaller structures and bones, but even in like bigger bones. It, and I haven't looked at research as far as, you know, like, you know, bigger areas and bigger bones are concerned. But uh, it's I'm guessing it's probably possible that MRI might still catch things there, which X-rays might not. Yeah, that's a good point. It seems like uh, I've seen patients with similar stories as well. I had one with a femoral condyle fracture that was missed with radiograph and picked up with uh, MRI. And so, yeah, I think that um, in general, you have to be ca careful. And then, of course, there's also um, the experience and expertise of the person reading the radiograph, too, you know, on top of the on top of everything else. And then acute radiographs are less accurate than radiographs that are taken later. And so there's a lot of uh, nuance to that. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot to consider for sure. Well, that's true. So in your experience, did you, did you find out if you did in fact have a fracture or you did not? I actually, I don't know if they were very happy with me, but I called them back and I said, I want to come back in for these two views. And they did the views. And uh, at this point, the, um, the gentleman that I saw was, I think, a little defensive and, uh, you know, was saying, well, you know, I, I'm not sure, but maybe just maybe just wear a wrist splint for six weeks to be sure. And so that's what I did. But uh, but <laughs> so I, I'm not completely sure because I don't I'm not an expert in reading them either as a PT, you know, um, but yeah. uh, I suspect that I might have had something going on there. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like I mean, it's not just um, these imaging, like different kinds of imaging, whatever it be, like PT, MRI, X-rays. It's also like how your symptoms are correlating with that, right? Like uh, I had a situation where um, like a car is rarely kind of ran over my toes. And I was worried too that if I had a crush injury or whatever, I had them get an x-ray and like my big toe looked a little swollen and it felt like that too. But then they didn't really see any break anywhere else. And at that time, I didn't really think about things like, okay, I should probably have gotten an MRI to make sure right. that there was a break. But then the swelling in the big toe, which did the, which they did see on the x-ray, was something that I did have. And I like I had symptoms for that, and that gradually resolved. So it was like at a point where I felt like, okay, if my symptoms are not correlating, then maybe I don't need more imaging. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point, for sure. Okay. Cool. Well, um, not to get too carried away with that, uh, I guess we'll move on to our next resource. So our next uh, resource today is um, what is Huntington's disease? And this resource was written by Troy. So I will let Troy talk about it. Troy, can you please tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, sure. So 
Huntington's disease is a rare neurologic disorder that uh, ultimately it affects uh, portions of the basal ganglia. So often when we hear about that, the first thing that clinicians think of is, is Parkinson's, right? That's one of the more common diagnoses that also affects areas of the basal ganglia. In this case, we see symptoms that in some ways are similar to, you know, kind of these motor coordination and movement uh, um, uh, diseases. Um, with this, the defining feature of Huntington's disease is, is, uh, is chorea, which is a form of kind of movement spasm that is pretty severe in nature. Um, I guess, you know, even maybe even before I jump into this resource a little bit, um, this is this is a diagnosis that is um, that is pretty severe and significant. It ultimately ends uh, ends in the patient um, uh, dying. So as a caveat with this, we need to be really thoughtful, I think, as clinicians when we approach this handout, right? So this isn't something that I'm going to necessarily, you know, I've got a patient that comes in that's referred from neurology with a diagnosis of Huntington's disease. And this isn't going to be the resource that I pull out. And I'm like, oh, look, I'm this really well-prepared clinician. Um, and, you know, let me give you all of these resources on Huntington's disease. Because, you know, there's some things in this document that are hard to, um, that are hard to, uh, Kind of accept and, and swallow so but so i guess that being said what the disease process is is it's a genetic disorder um, so it doesn't happen as often uh the incidence is down compared to um you know years ago because of the fact that there's genetic testing that's available um uh, so if you if you're a carrier of this and you have this genetic mutation um, there's there's potential that you would uh, you would pass this along so um, uh, to any offspring that you have the average onset of symptoms is is folks in their mid 40s um, and they develop these kind of facial twitches is often what begins um, so this can be kind of like odd smiles or frowns they're pretty dramatic in nature they're not uh very subtle sticking out of the tongue um, that's a common uh symptom associated with huntington's disease as well um, as the disease progresses it begins to affect more um, yeah more extremities uh, things other than the face so um, arm movements leg movements trunk movements obviously then because of that uh, mobility becomes more and more challenging um, so in later stages of the disease we might work on uh, getting patients uh, adequately um, supported in in a wheelchair um, you know maybe maybe there's uh, custom seating systems that are needed to make sure that um, these choreatic movements don't cause the patient to fall out of their chair or something along those lines. So I'm thinking about that, about assistive devices, maybe as gait begins to deteriorate. Um, ultimately, this, uh, this disease will continue to progress. So your goals are really about um, maintaining safety um, and mobility um, to the best of the ability in, in that moment. Um, so being very forward and upfront, I think, with your patients about what your goals are, about what can we do to best prepare for one year from now or things like that and kind of having those conversations. Because this is a patient also that, really 
um, would would likely benefit from um, therapeutic oversight, uh, probably, you know, for the entirety of their diagnosis. So this isn't, you know, this isn't uh, a standard one or two plans of care. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to see this patient until they potentially have to trans transition to uh, an assisted living facility or some sort of long-term care um, if caregiving becomes more uh, more challenging later on. So, um, you know, at the bottom of this resource, we talk a little bit about uh, specific um, uh, ways to, or, or the, the ways that different disciplines might interact with someone with Huntington's disease. So it gives a couple of examples of things that you might be concerned about or write goals towards um, uh, and have objectives for whether you're a speech therapist or an occupational therapist or a physical therapist. The goal with that is really, you know, with Huntington's disease being relatively, um, relatively rare, I wanted to make this resource something that uh, we felt like all disciplines could use, not just physical therapy, because ultimately speech therapy and occupational therapy are going to be a huge part of, um, of uh, habilitation in, um, in, in these patients, especially speech therapy and later, uh, um, yeah, kind of later disease uh, process. So. Um, are you guys able to hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, try, I, I haven't had much experience with like working with patients with Huntington's, um, but then like, you know, from your handout, like it's making more sense. Um, I would assume that, you know, they would be in like transitioning to skilled nursing, long-term care, probably palliative and hospice care at some point too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at some point in time, you know, that, uh, that is very, very likely, I guess. Um, the, I think the, you know, the prognosis, uh, for someone, at least in, in North America, I want to say you kind of based on when the average person is, is, um, this is detected. I think life expectancy is maybe around 15 years, if I remember right. So, um, it's not, you know, it's not immediate, but you'll see um, continued kind of decline. I guess one of the things that we didn't mention, you know, I, I speak as a physical therapist primarily about the physical limitations, but um, this is going to affect cognitive function as well. So that's that's another, you know, when I kind of gave us our, our disclaimer at the beginning of, hey, this, this is something that you want to ease into in terms of discussion with your patients. That can be obviously a, a, a whole nother um, realm of challenging conversation as we're talking about um, declining kind of cognitive status for folks uh, um, with this diagnosis. So I think like the goals also will get like more and more specific depending upon like what stage of progression they're in. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're seeing me right out of the gates, you know, um, it's going to be a lot more motor coordination type tasks. Um, and, and I think safety and, and uh, forward thinking uh, preparation, I guess, is probably the most important. But um, once you get later on, you know, safety is, uh, is different, right? Like I said, it's maybe custom wheelchair seating to make sure that you can, you don't um, fall out of your chair or something like that, as opposed to how do we navigate with bilateral trekking poles or something like that over, over terrain. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Right. No, absolutely. Like, I like that you mentioned like this whole section about how therapy is optimizing the quality of life because I feel like, you know, based on all this information, obviously they need to be educated early on as to what the prognosis of the disease is and that we're not really working towards like trying to get to a prior level, but more like maintaining the quality of life at each stage and at each progression that they're having. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that's, that's really important. And if you're, if you're not a physical therapist that treats a lot of folks with neurodegenerative conditions, I think this can be a hard thing to um, appreciate um, the fact that, hey, guess what, my goals aren't about getting you back to, like you said, your prior level, but but rather kind of uh, preparing and making things as optimal as we can right now, because this is gonna, um, this is gonna get worse. Uh, so, so yeah, I, you know, you have to, yeah, you really have to balance, um, therapeutic goals with, uh, patient trust and patient understanding. Um, it's a delicate, yeah, it's a delicate situation for sure. For sure. Well, thank you for talking about this. Okay. So moving on to our next resource, um, this resource was created by Troy again, and this is Should I Use Hot or Cold? Troy, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, this one is totally different than the last one we talked about, right? So this is the the kind of classic, um, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, elevator question that you get passing by type thing. Um, you, know, I'll, I, you know, I'll have buddies or, or even physicians that'll be like, you know, hey, I'm having this uh, conversation with, you know, with my friend, we can't remember, like, should we be using hot therapy or cold therapy after this? Um, so, so this really is designed as a patient resource more than anything else that says, that, that ultimately tells you there's a, couple, there's a couple things that you should only use ice or you should only use heat. But for the most part, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of carryover uh, of this modality to a variety of different um, kind of injuries or, or ailments. So hot and cold therapy, I, I would say right now in, at least in the United States, I think modalities in general, and I've mentioned this in the past, have really um, kind of swung to one end of the spectrum in terms of uh, probably being a little devalued or, or less valued um, uh, than um, than they maybe were in, let's say, you know, the the 80s, or when we were using hydrocolators all the time, or or things like that. We don't we don't see that quite as often. But but guess what? Hot and cold. It's been around for a long time. We've been treating uh, treating patients um, with these types of things for uh, for a very very long time. So um, you know, take this as you will in terms of how you incorporate it into your practice, but. It outlines, yeah, just this hot, uh, hot therapies, what types of things they are. So, you know, it's not complicated, hot packs, hot tubs, infrared lamps, paraffin baths, um, and as well as cold therapies, what types there are, how, you know, how we would, uh, uh, how we would cool somebody's tissues down. And then it talks about what it does when we heat up tissues or cool them, um, as well as indications for that. So this one is unique and you have to be able to kind of, uh, navigate your way through the directions in this sheet. So there's color coordinated um, uh, kind of asterisks that are associated with specific conditions and whether or not cold, heat, or either 
are appropriate. So for things like, um, uh, I mean, really the big one that I think a lot of people would understand is an acute injury, um, right? An acute injury is going to be something that we're not going to put heat on, right? So that's not, uh, that's not appropriate. If someone is actively hemorrhaging, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to put heat on that and increase blood flow, right? So, um, but if someone has, let's say, um, yeah, so this cellular trauma, right? Meaning a wound or an injury, we're gonna uh, we're gonna put cold on that. If they have a tendinopathy, we're gonna put cold on that. Bursitis, we're gonna put cold on that. Um, versus abnormal muscle tone or trigger points or pain, those types of things can be used with either hot or cold therapy. So um, at the end of this, it does mention contraindications. Um, some of those are also kind of asterisks with. Uh, with whether or not hot or cold um, is is appropriate or inappropriate in this case. So things, you know, I felt like if we were going to give this to a patient that was asking about, hey, you know, I'm hurting or or whatnot, and I, I have a hot pack, should I use it? Should I, or a rice bag, should I put it in the microwave or should I put it in the freezer? Um, I wanted to at least give uh, our patients some understanding of contraindications so that we can hand this to them and feel um, like we did our due diligence in terms of uh, uh, making sure that uh, they were going to be safe to be able to perform some of these things too. So um, ultimately a simple but hopefully effective resource for, uh, yeah, for your patients. Thank you, Troy. And uh, Troy did uh, give us insights from an article that was related to this resource. So I'm going to have him talk about the article. Um, so that is our next resource, which is um, Heat and Cold Therapy Reduce Pain in Patients with Delayed Onset of Muscle Soreness, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of 32 Randomized Controlled Trials. Troy, can, can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. Yeah, there's... there's um... Ultimately, this study is, is yeah, trying to kind of determine what I was talking about earlier with hot and cold therapy. What's, what's better? What do we, we want to um, use it for? This is specifically looking at DOMS, right, which is this delayed onset muscle soreness. This is what happens, is the phenomenon that happens after you do an excessively hard workout for you um, and you experience uh, kind of extreme muscle soreness that progresses you know, probably for the first 24 hours and then and then maybe gets worse um, or continues on for, for several days. Um, so anytime anybody can experience this after they significantly increase their workload. Um, so this doesn't have to be just for our uh, elite athletes. We can see this in, in, in other individuals as well. Um, the researchers here really reviewed a lot of literature. There's, there is a lot of literature on hot and cold um, therapies. Unfortunately, a lot of it is not very good. Um, it's not very well controlled um, or um, done in a very systematic way. The hope with, with, of this was to collect, um, collect studies, grade those studies on how, uh, um, how well they uh, were able to perform um, their stated uh, goals. Um, in this case, they looked at uh, um, a variety of randomized controlled trials that I think included a little bit over a thousand different subjects. Um, of these, 
for the most part, the, um, the articles that were included um, had either hot or cold um, therapies provided within an one hour post-workout. Uh, and really what they found was there, there wasn't a ton of difference between hot or cold post-workout. Um, they did find that there's maybe some reduction in pain. Um, so again, a subjective, uh, a subjective thing, but, uh, uh, but regardless on a visual analog scale, there was some reduction in pain within that first 24 hours. Um, there was reduction for both groups, uh, both hot uh, and cold groups. Uh, but beyond that, there wasn't any um, significant difference uh, after 24 hours in terms of decreasing the pain. So, you know, where this is probably most helpful is gonna be for someone um, that has to perform again within that period of time. So, you know, my, the classic example might be, um, you know, the, uh, the elite power lifter that is in, maybe not a power lifter, let's say CrossFit or something along those lines, um, where you have one event, um, and then guess what? You got another event four hours from now. That might be a good time where, um, where there is some evidence to suggest you might have some decreased pain um, associated with this. So uh, you got to do it right away or right after within that first hour is, is um, what they found. Um, and then really hot or cold um, would, would, be, uh, would be appropriate uh, based on, on what they found. So in, in my opinion, I would do um, whatever, whatever uh, feels um, best and most conducive for, for that individual. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Troy. Um, this was actually interesting. And this being more recent, I'm glad that they were able to like, you know, at least, I um, mean, they, they haven't told for sure that one has a greater benefit compared to the other, but I'm glad that both are useful because honestly, before this was mentioned, I was under the impression that it was always like heat, not so mm. much cold. I'm glad that we were able to clarify that we can use cold as well. And again, like the timeline of doing it an hour post activity within that one hour like i'm glad i got to know about that too yeah it's 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 i mean ultimately it's a hard thing to study because you can't you know to to biopsy these tissues or something like that um you know these temperature changes are already going to happen so it's a tough thing to study and there's there's a lot of odd phenomenon around hot and cold therapies too right if you cool a tissue down uh, for an extended period of time we actually see an influx in tissue temperature later on because your body says oh hey guess what this is cooling down too fast Put as much energy and blood here as we can to warm this back up before you see it start, start to cool again. So, you know, it's 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 a hard thing to, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's a hard thing to study or a hard thing to prove, and, and that's probably why there is not a lot of great evidence on it. Um, but again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, people have been using um, thermotherapies of one sort or another for uh, for a very long time for 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 healing. So I think it's, uh, I think it's something to at least consider and, and, and value to some degree. So. Yeah. I mean, I was under the, so like with delayed onset of muscle soreness, it lasts anywhere between 24 to 72 hours post, you know, doing that, an activity of that intensity, which you're not used to. So I was under the impression that any 
time between that time frame when it really intensifies compared to when you know it started they're okay to use heat i did not know that it was restricted just for an hour post yeah and and you know so so i guess i can't say if that is if that's needed or not because ultimately what they did is they looked at only studies that provided this intervention within one hour so right. beyond that i can't say yes or no right, right? but what i can say is that this is what they've found um, based on right. if this intervention is provided within one hour if we were to look back at that other resource there's a lot of reports mm -hmm. of analgesic effects from both hot and cold in the moment right. um, at the very least you know regardless of the pain is acute or chronic or or whatnot um, so there's some pain modulation that can occur, uh, can occur for for some individuals with each of those so so to to say that it's not worth doing after beyond that uh, we can't make that conclusion yeah no that makes sense absolutely um so moving on um since we end all of our um shows with a case study we're going to be talking about today's case study, um, and these are a great opportunity for us to use the resources in our access task library and apply them to these cases um, and discuss these cases from different perspectives. Okay, so today's case study is a 40-year-old woman with right cervical radiculopathy who lives with her spouse, works as a stock trader, and she has to spend long working hours on her computer She's been experiencing some worsening pain recently in her neck, and it has been limiting her neck mobility and ability to work. She wants to get rid of her pain and get back to doing things like she was doing before. So the resource that I recommended for this, and again, uh, this was kind of loosely based on one of my patients. Um, um, the resource that I recommended for this one was the Associated Dermatomes, Reflexes, and Paresthesias for Cervical Nerve Roots. Basically, I felt like this resource helped me like demonstrate, like you know, like educate the patient more specifically, like um, what areas would really be affected and where she would really feel the pain, depending on what is involved as far as her neck is concerned. This, this patient found it really hard to like understand and like um, till she was able to get like a just a good visual view of things as to like what is exactly going on in her spine and then how that is impacting her neck, her shoulder, her, all the way up to her arms. So I felt like this being a very uh, concise, colorful um, resource um, where it, like where it's grouping um, each level based on like the dermatome location, the associated muscles, the reflexes, and then if they would experience any kind of paresthesias or not. Like it was very helpful for the patient to understand, not just in terms of like the pictures, but also like okay, like if my muscles are involved um, and if I'm feeling numbness, at what level, what is expected. So I think this is a very great resource to like educate patients, especially the ones that are visual learners and find it kind of harder to understand when you just speak in technical terms. So they're able to like visually see what's going on. And then that kind of helps them um, not just understand their symptoms, but it kind of sets realistic expectation as to like how they can progress in therapy. Okay, so moving on, um, 
the resource that uh, Troy recommended for this. Um, yeah, great. So this one is uh, this one is just instructions for acute neck pain. It is it's a specific uh, it's a very specific kind of protocol that is um, if if I remember right is kind of uh, kind of a McKinsey type method. So McKinsey is um, yeah a physio that. Uh, um, yeah, that has been around for a little while and has developed specific kind of movement uh, movement patterns. So this resource just goes through a potential, um, yeah, kind of potential options and progressions for someone um, that is experiencing acu acute neck pain. This is one that I would say is really meant for, yeah, for the patient as a handout um, that I would think of more as like a, uh, um, maybe this isn't our primary concern um, right, because there's not a lot of assessment necessarily that I'm doing with this. This is more for the patient. Uh, so it's, it's a tool for someone that, um, you know, maybe is experiencing uh, pain in the past and has had success um, with this type of method or something along those lines. But it's a nice, specific, detailed, outlined way that's written in a lay perspective uh, for someone to um, be able to kind of pick up and navigate their way through some progressions of decreasing their neck pain. Yeah. Um, Troy, I, I will let you talk about the other resource that you recommended for this particular Yeah, perfect. I know I couldn't help myself. I was like, oh man, there's two good ones for this stock trader. Um, right. So this is a nice handout for someone that, uh, yeah, that's working at a desk space. And if they feel like their pain is, is, um, is a result to some degree of their workspace ergonomics, this is a nice way that, you know, doesn't necessarily require, um, uh, um, uh, like a, a PT to come into the workplace to set it up. But, you know, if you if you work a job that's repetitive in nature, sometimes they will have that um, as an option. But let's say you don't, um, or you're working for yourself, or you're at a company that's not uh, quite big enough to to be able to satisfy those things. This is a this is a way that you can um, help to manage your own um, uh, posture, I guess, um, and ergonomics when you're when you're working at a desk. So it's got a checklist kind of things to go through and look at um, that, yeah, are about table height, monitor height, chair height, angles of the chair, feet placement, all of that. So a nice resource for a patient as well that's that's trying to set up their, their space for, for comfort. Perfect. So the next resource is the one that uh, Ross recommended for this particular case, and that was uh, the DN4 for evaluating neuropathic pain interpretation and implications for practice. Yeah, uh, this piece is uh, definitely designed for clinicians. Uh, the DN4 is probably my favorite outcome for evaluate or favorite outcome measure for evaluating. Uh, neuropathic pain. Uh, what I like about it is it has very high sensitivity compared to a lot of other tools like the LANS, and it takes about one minute to do, and it's integrated pretty seamlessly into your own um, uh, history and your clinical examination. And so um, it's a pretty nice tool for being able to rule out um, neuropathic pain. So we know that a lot of people can have referred pain from the neck, and it might be 
discogenic referred pain, which isn't really a neuropathic issue. Um, it can be radicular referred pain, which is, or it could be true radiculopathy where you have your myotome, dermatome reflex loss as well. So uh, with this tool, um, it can be helpful to determine if they, someone has neuropathic pain. The reason why uh, we care about that, um, there's a, the first section kind of goes into what you can do with that information. So we know that uh, um, no susceptive predominant pain. Uh, there's a pretty good uh, meta-analysis in the European Journal of Pain, I think it was in 2021, where they looked at um, conditions that were affected by, uh, that were more nociceptive predominant pain compared to nociplastic predominant pain. So nociplastic predominant pain is where it's essentially the concept of neuroplasticity um, and then applying that to pain where neural pathways that are used a lot are strengthened. And with nociplastic pain, um, things that really um, shouldn't be painful anymore, like having your skin brushed become very painful and you get sensitization of the nervous system essentially. And so uh, there is some evidence that people who have persistent neuropathic pain are more likely to develop nociplastic pain than people who have persistent nociceptive pain, though nociceptive pain can cause that, it's just less likely. And the evidence seems to suggest that uh, higher intensity exercise, you get a really nice analgesic response from that, um, which can kind of uh, be helpful. So as an example, there's another study um, where essentially they had people with nociceptive back pain do high intensity cycling or low intensity cycling and the high intensity cycling was better for reducing pain. But it's kind of the opposite is true when you're dealing with issues like persistent neuropathic pain that cause those uh, nociplastic changes where um, actually a lower intensity approach is more appropriate because a lot of the natural indwelling um, um, inhibitory processes that we normally have with exercise that can uh, inhibit pain, they're not as functional with uh, some of these other uh, types of pain. So it can be good to determine whether someone's actually dealing with true neuropathic pain versus like a discogenic nociceptive referred pain. So um, the tool itself is pretty easy to use. Um, first, you do um, a couple uh, inter interview questions. You ask if they have burning, painful cold sensations, or electric sh shocks. And then you ask about tingling, pins and needles, numbness, or itching. And then uh, you, for the patient examination, you check for touch hypoesthesia and then pricking hypoesthesia. And then you brush, you know, you take some cotton or something, you brush it over the painful area and see if they uh, interpret that as being painful. You get one point for every yes and a cutoff of. Uh, over four suggests that they have neuropathic pain with pretty good sensitivity and specificity. Um, and so, like I said, it takes about one minute to do. And it's, uh, it's nice because a lot of our other outcome measures, um, you know, uh, they can, there's tons of outcome measures we'd love to use, but it's hard to because you don't want the patient to be in there for an hour doing paperwork. And so I, I really like this as kind of a simple, easy to apply uh, tool to evaluate that. Oh, thanks, Ross. I didn't know about this questionnaire. So maybe I'll give it a try and see how effective it is with my patients. Yeah, it's something I actually uh, kind of stumbled on in the research, and it's not something I um, was very familiar with. I think it's more commonly used in France, actually. I think that uh, 
um, that's where it was developed. And so, um, but I, I think it's very valuable and I, I like that it's very efficient and quick, so. Awesome. Okay, um, so before we wrap up, we I do want to mention some of our interdisciplinary resources uh, that were added to our library that maybe you all might be interested in. Our OT team created resources, um, some resources. Um, there was one called Overstimulation After Brain Injury, which basically talks about like uh, what kind of uh, sensory overload uh, can an individual experience after a brain injury, and then what strategies can they use to cope with that overstimulation? What are some of the signs that you can use to identify like that they are having the side effect after a brain injury and then what strategies you can use for this. Um, another great resource that our OT team created was um, about the different rehab settings. Now this would be a good understanding for someone who is just um, beginning to practice as a clinical therapist and um, they want to have a better understanding of like how the whole transition period works from like a hospital all the way up to an outpatient. So then they can look at our, our resource and understand different rehab settings and like at what level do you um, send patient to which setting and then what setting would be appropriate. It just helps um, new grad therapists understand and like and make good discharge decisions. Another resource uh, that was uh, created, uh, this was by our SLP team. Um, this was for incentives parameter. And uh, this gives uh, us a good uh, view of like the different, um, how you can use this parameter and then at different lung capacities, what can you expect? What do you need to look for? and then um, how this can be really effectively used in clinical practice. Also, I forgot to mention our OT team created another great resource called subacromial trauma. So basically this talks about like um, what you can do when you get patients with subacromial trauma and what kind of precautions you need to follow and then how best can you refer these patients out. So if you do get a chance, feel free to check out these awesome resources in our Access Pass library. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for watching our recording or listening to our podcast. Um, please feel free to check our Access Pass library and use our resources. Um, um, and we hope you find them helpful.